Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. As usual, we have an outstanding panel today, political strategist, crisis communications consultant, and Lincoln Project senior advisor, Susan Del Percio. It's great to have you on again, Susan. Hey, Ron. It's great to be here. And my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder and former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. Mike, it's so great to have you back. Thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to break down Donald Trump's attempted coup after losing the election to Joe Biden. Lindsey Graham's descent into election interference in another state, the rising number of COVID deaths and the ousting of the country's top election security official. So let's start with Trump and his co-conspirators who have continued their assault on democracy this week. They're attacking democracy on multiple fronts, so there's a lot to unpack. But I want to start with Michigan. In an unprecedented move, Trump summoned Republican lawmakers from Michigan to the White House today. The Trump campaign has openly tossed around the idea that they would attempt to get friendly state legislatures to overturn the will of the people in their states and appoint electors loyal to Trump. It looks like they're attempting to do just that with this meeting. Trump has invited the Michigan State Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky and House Speaker Lee Chatfield to the White House. So, Mike, I want to start with you because a month or two back, Steve Schmidt and I had a conversation on the podcast explaining the importance of and the history of peaceful transfers of power in the American system. And on that episode, he noted that there will be no Trump coup in this country. But now it seems that the nation is watching the president of the United States and his co-conspirators, I think we need to call them now, rather than enablers, attempting just that, a coup to overturn the results of an election in broad daylight. Now, our institutions are holding, and by all confidence, they will continue to hold. But what are we to make of this moment in history? And what does this unprecedented series of events mean for the first days of Biden's presidency? And what does it mean for the 2022 races, which, as we know, are just now beginning? So there's a lot to unpack there, and they're all the right questions at this extraordinary time. But let me say this. There's not going to be a coup d'etat. There will not be an overthrowing of the legitimately elected new president of the United States. I don't believe that what we're witnessing is an exercise of power. I think it's more a pathetic slide into into a loss of, of power, effectively. Let me explain a little bit of what I mean by that. Look, the ultimate goal here, in my estimation, is trying to undermine the confidence in the electoral process and the election system and a wide swath and a growing swath of Americans who believe that Joe Biden was the duly elected president of the United States. The, numer- the math simply doesn't work here. There's been no evidence on its face suggested that there's been enough voter fraud committed even at all 
uh, but certainly not enough to out, uh, overturn the outcome of this of this race and of this election. So, so what is going on? Um, let's start with Michigan. I, I think that's a really good place to start. This this is where you had a couple of canvassers in the Detroit area, Republicans in a partisan vote at the local level, vote to not certify the election initially. Once enough pressure was brought to bear and the facts were illustrated that the counties where they were permitting the votes, even with more egregious errors or differences between the the voter rolls and the actual votes cast, benefiting white areas, overwhelmingly white communities, these two partisan electors or or overseers of the electoral process changed their their vote back to certify the election. Okay, The way this Mm -hmm. works is there's county canvassers and those county canvassers um, authorize it. They certify it, essentially. It doesn't become official until it's certified by the Secretary of State. But every county goes through a process of certification, sends it up to the state, and then the state, Secretary of State, certifies um, what happened there. So, again, apologize for how how you know mundane all of this process is, but it is very important to understand what can and cannot happen. We now enter a phase Very important. December 8th is a very important deadline. The constitutional requirement is that on that date, certification by the states needs to have happened in the election that took place on November the 3rd. By every estimation, this will happen with many days to spare. Certification means the race is official. There's really no remedy beyond the certification process to undo that certification. So once they are sent forth, we declare, each state is basically declaring that its state has won or the popular vote in that state has gone for one candidate or the other. In this case, of course, it would be Joe Biden. Now, there's there's some areas, and I don't even want to call it murky because it's not it's not really contestable, but there's some shenanigans, I guess, that could sort of conceivably be played in this process. And I want to be very careful about that because there is a pretty clear line of what needs to happen and what cannot happen here. Okay. If in the event uh, when the Electoral College meets on the 14th, a state has not certified its balloting, then the state legislature has the ability to come in and determine who those electors are, okay? That is That seems to be, it seems to be what perhaps a strategy, if there is one, on behalf of the Trump campaign is trying to employ. But there's two things about that. The first is it's being handled remarkably incompetently, okay? This is like a, a clown coup if, if one were happening. You couldn't make up a theater of the absurd more you know hilariously taking a look at the Giuliani press conference, the legal arguments that are being made and these specious lawsuits that are being filed that are being tossed out summarily very quickly without without merit. So there's really there's nothing that is sticking. It just seems that this is is part of the process to kind of obfuscate and sort of delay into this gray zone. And then once it gets into this quote unquote gray zone, which really is not all that gray, the hope is that they can then further this process of destabilizing and undermining the confidence of the outcome of the race. That appears to be what the end game is. There is no strategy. His own people are basically, when pressed, are saying, well, voter fraud didn't really occur on the scale that we're talking about. We don't really know what exactly we're arguing. We're just trying to kind of stay in the papers as long as we can. And to that end, the objective of undermining Joe Biden as a legitimately elected president seems to be the end game unto itself. That is not a coup. That is not an overthrow of the government. It is It is delegitimizing the standing of the incoming president in the minds of the public, a wide swath of, of the public, overwhelmingly partisan and partisanship, 
We've seen these numbers move decisively against confidence in the election in just a week's time as the president has kind of fanned these flames. That, again, appears to be the end game here. He's trying to consolidate a base uh, in exile when he's no longer president of the United States, is keeping his constituency behind him, keeping as many pillars of, quote-unquote, power, Republicans, from, from leaving him, and further casting doubt on the outcome of what was clearly uh, an election that, frankly, was not that close and, and was handled remarkably smoothly considering all the potential problems that we at the Lincoln Project were anticipating and looking for as political experts and as practitioners going, man, there's a million ways that this thing could go sideways. None of that materialized. Mm-hmm. This is a yeah. very clean, very well-handled, very well-processed election. Kudos to the Secretary of State and to the millions or hundreds of thousands of volunteers who helped make the process move smoothly. The fact that you could have a record number of Americans showing up with almost no snafus is really the big story is how clean and well handled this election process actually was. So given everything that Mike just articulated, Susan, and the unlikelihood of any of these shenanigans to take hold legally, I'd love to get your thoughts on why you think Trump and the people around him are continuing down this path what it means for them post-inauguration, what it means for the 2022 elections and how Republicans behave going forward, and what is the short-term or long-term benefit to the president in sowing all of this chaos and confusion and, and mistrust of American institutions. Yeah, I think when you're dealing with President Trump, you have to always figure out his motivation is what serves him best. I th- I agree that there is a lot of undermining of the election, of, of the credibility of Joe Biden as president-elect. But I, I look at it in more brass tacks. I think Donald Trump is using this as an opportunity to raise money. The moment he concedes, he has to he can't raise money for this fight. I get 18 emails a day asking for money for this legal defense. I actually think the real legal defense he's looking for and what has really has him scared and his back up against the wall are the legal issues that he faces in New York. Mm. And that is by the Manhattan County District Attorney and by the New York State Attorney General. Uh, The New York State Attorney General is a civil case. Uh, The Manhattan District Attorney has one civil case and potentially, he has said, a criminal case. There is nothing that can be done. There's no deals to be worked out for a pardon there. This is not a federal, this is not the Southern District of New York. This is New York State, and they can, there is no pardon power there. Even you can't if Biden negotiate went, the deal. You can't, you can't <laughs> negotiate the deal because it cannot happen. Um, and it being New York, of course, there's a lot of politics around that. But again, what serves him best? Raising money. Mm. And that's what he needs, and that's what he's afraid of. I don't think he gives a hoot about the 2022 elections, what this does. He's not, I mean, consolidating power, he already thinks that, his people are his forever. I think he's going to be in for a rude awakening once he is gone. Um, and, and that, core, you know, how small that core actually is that's willing to buy a subscription to Trump TV for, you know, six ninety five a month. But it does play in 2022 in the sense of what the elected officials, what our current elected officials are doing right now and their silence and they're not standing up the Republicans for democracy. They're not saying what Donald Trump is doing is fundamentally wrong. This is what happens in banana republics. This Mm -hmm. doesn't happen in the United States of America. And by doing that, by their silence, it's not passive. To me, it's a very aggressive behavior. 
and they will they will rule the day shall i say (laughs) (laughs) because it will haunt them they are you know Lincoln Project's still around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we said we were going to defeat Trump and Trumpism. Yeah, and and going after these people. And I and and I what I like so far is is that we're starting in Georgia, but I know that effort's going to continue. And you have to keep hitting these folks now. I mean, we have three senators who've spoken up: Joni Ernst, who was just reelected; Mitt Romney, no surprise, um, because he's been very independent; and Ben Sass, who kind of flows in and out of the ebb of. When he wants to say something, you know, he, he decides when he has the, the moral aptitude for that. But those other Republicans, forget about it. They they deserve just the wrath to come down on them, because, again, if you can't be for democracy, if you can't be for yeah. the Constitution, how can you possibly even represent a constituency? And they're all going to try and back away from it. Take Lindsey Graham, for example, all of his nonsense, which I know we're going to get into later. Yeah. But. When Vice President-elect Harris came on to the Senate floor, what does he do? He fist pumps her. He's like, yeah, you know, it's all good. Like, as if it's, you know, don't pay attention to that noise. Don't worry, we're buds. It was disgusting. And, you know, it's it's such a shame he didn't lose. But he has rewritten his history and no one will forget it. Yeah, we will get to Lindsay uh, in just a little bit. But before we do, Mike, is sedition an appropriate word to be using? for what the president is doing and for what the people around him are doing right now. You know, there's a difference between sedition and treason, right? I think in a couple of ways, they're both app. Sedition is, is actually a call for the overthrow, essentially, of, of, of the government. I think Sidney Powell, the attorney who was uh, took the stage yesterday at the Giuliani press conference, is probably uh, acting more seditiously at this point than the president, although I think a very legitimate case can be made. Look, I think because we are so unaccustomed to this as Americans, we do not recognize uh, that on its face what is happening is an attempt, feeble though it may be, an attempt to undermine the validity of our electoral processes constitutionally delineated. On its face, again, that is an act against our government. That is an act against our basic framework of governance. And so, yes, I do believe that this is uh, an action being taken that undermines our government. There should be an account for that, not just for the president of the United States, though he certainly should be, but for those lawyers who are acting consciously to undermine the integrity of the basic underpinnings and foundation of the United States government. I believe to my core that that is exactly what is happening. We can argue about the semantics of traitorous or treasonous behavior or sedition, but by my definition, it certainly meets an act of sedition when you are working consciously with no evidence to undermine a duly elected head of state. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a domestic threat. That is literally what the founders, I think, were trying to prevent when they included the language in our Constitution to defend the sacredness of this document. So, yes, I believe that that is exactly what is happening. So, uh, and this is to both of you because I don't know the answer, but what would the recourse be for voters against acts of sedition? What is the remedy? What is What can be done either legally or electorally or otherwise to correct that? Well, you vote them out. That's the only that's the only thing that the, the American people can do is vote them out. And, you know, as far as punishing them for their crimes, if you will. But I also think that 
we, we talk about these things and they are extremely important. There's no doubt about it. And when we talk about the actions of undermining democracy, critical. But I'd just like to, for, for the listeners to understand there's something that when we talk about it at that level, at 30,000 yeah, feet, yeah. we should bring it back down. You're totally right. To what it really, truly means. Because I agree with Mike, Joe Biden will be President Biden on January 20th. The process will continue and he will be president. But what's happening now, we are a vulnerable country during this time. And when we, and we talk about the, the sacredity of, of the transfer, peaceful transfer of power, that sounds really beautiful and it is an amazing thing. But what it really happens now is that that's when the president-elect gets briefed. This mm -hmm. is a time for national security. This is time for creating a government. We're in the middle of a pandemic. That we're going to have to deliver a vaccine. There are so many critical elements. And I think by breaking it down so people can know that if this doesn't go well, people die. That is really, first and foremost, people are going to die because there will be a slowdown. We are seeing 2,000 people die a day, 200,000 people getting te um, tested positive a day now, 193 yesterday. It is going to spike without allowing President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris the ability to hit the ground running. They are literally causing deaths. And if you want to talk, I mean, that to me is yeah. a real crime that I, yeah. I wish could be prosecuted yeah. because that is what is happening. And never mind all the other national security impl implications that go on just at that level. But boy, does that scare me? And that should scare every American. I understand you wanted to, you know, you hear these big conversations and they're important, but people are going to die. Yeah. Last week on the Roundup, we had John Seifer on and we talked about the national security implications of a delayed transfer of power, uh, a delayed transition, you know, on the international stage with regard to how our allies and our adversaries view us and the ability of the intelligence community to, do, to continue to do its work. But you're talking about the domestic vulnerabilities that we face. Just taking COVID alone is a massive, massive threat to our national security and to our public health. It, it is. And it's something that really should be a concern to every American because this virus is hitting us all. We are now seeing there's no way we're slowing this down. It is going to keep going. We can try and use masking, but you, you're going to have, it's still a political issue. This virus is raring and going to get even worse. We're talking about 400,000 deaths potentially by March. This These numbers People, it hits home. Everyone is now starting to say, I have a relative, I have a neighbor. Yeah. And in that implication, and that's what's so dangerous about all of this, is that Donald Trump has checked out. His chief of staff had said, we're not going to try and figure out what to do about this virus. We're just going to get a vaccine. Well, they, don't, they can't distribute that vaccine. That's going to be up to Joe Biden. And they need to do everything possible to make sure people are going to get that and other therapeutics. The ironic part is the Operation Warp Speed mm -hmm. is proving to do, to be, is doing very well for the, serving its, its objective, which is to get these vaccines approved, you know, and manufactured. And if Donald Trump just had one scintilla of caring about the country, he could actually say that and take, take some kind of victory from that. Mm. But he doesn't care about the people. He doesn't care about COVID was something that got in his way. Those deaths got in his way. That's he, they were annoyances. And you know what? 
We're now talking about 253,000 people dead. We're still talking about it. It's November 20th, not way after November 3rd when he said it was just going to go away. No, it's worse. And he is not, he has to relinquish it. And as far as, you know, the general service uh, administrator goes, she's a disgrace. She's been complaining to people that, oh, I'm between a tough spot. No, there's no tough spot. When you're not sure what to do, do the right thing. That's easy. She should be trying to save people's lives. That's what it comes down to. And she's not. Let's linger on the topic of COVID just for a minute since you brought it up. Because Joe Biden said a couple of times, and he's absolutely right, we cannot begin to restart the economy until we fix the pandemic, until we until we heal as a country. And it seems to me that we cannot do that healing. We cannot distribute a vaccine and have 70% of Americans take it, which is what Dr. Fauci says we need. I think he'd prefer 80% if more than half the country doesn't plan on taking a vaccine. And if more than half the country has sort of succumbed to the disinformation campaigns and, and they don't trust anything about our institutions anymore. And Donald Trump seems intent on continuing to sow that kind of division, that kind of distrust among Americans, even after he's out. So how do we begin to move forward as a country together when that that really is the only path forward toward restarting? Like, if we're going to move past COVID, if we're going to inoculate Americans against the pandemic so that we can reopen the economy, how do we begin to, to read from the same page uh, basic facts, right? P- people have to want to get this vaccine. They have to trust the government to distribute it to them. And it seems to me that many of them don't and won't because of Donald Trump. I've got a pretty controversial answer to this, but and maybe because I, I'm a political practitioner, but I don't believe that unity needs should be the objective anymore. I think we've, we have learned so much over the past four years that there is a wide swath of Americans that are not trying to build a better America. They are not trying to take an extended olive branch and work together for common cause or for the betterment of this country. I believe one of the defining features of Trumpism is declinism. And declinism brings about a sense of hopelessness and ultimately a sense of both self and social destruction. And I believe that that is what we are seeing. I believe for the first time in our country's history, or at least in the last 150 years, we are witnessing an element that would rather see our institutions burn down than compromise and build towards something better. And I think that many of us who have been stuck in this idea of how do we understand the Trump supporter better? How do we understand the economic anxiety? How do we alleviate the the racial toxicity that is so central to it has really been the wrong question. And we're going to need to figure this out and move on very quickly. We cannot. But like a virus, we need to contain it. Like in a political campaign, you need to marginalize it and isolate it and have the majority move forward with an agenda that is more peaceable, that is more unifying. But I believe we've got to get past the point where we start believing that when 80% of the Republican Party does not believe that Joe Biden was duly elected, we are not going to convince them otherwise. You are never going to convince people who were walking out into the midst of, of a fall and winter rally to without a mask in violation of sixth grade science, jeopardizing their life and the lives of others in the midst of a deadly virus. These are not people that are trying to build a better America. Okay, And once we understand that, I think we can start to view this as a social problem, 
not as a political problem, and not even necessarily as a health problem, although it is. It will get to that once we understand the underlying social dynamics. But the idea of unity and coming together, I think, is a misguided notion. I know that that Mm. is probably controversial, but I think that overwhelming evidence would suggest that what I'm saying is exactly right. And so we need to start worrying about how we contain this, how we marginalize the disinformation, how we marginalize and ostracize socially some of these elements because we cannot get to 80% herd immunity with a vaccine when we have a Republican Party and political leadership that is openly advocating the destruction and death of their own people and they're willing to go ahead and go along with it. Wow, what a gut punch. I am like... I know, I (laughs) know. Go ahead, Susan. I was going to say, when you hear that coming from Mike Madrid, it says a lot. Like, that just not, like, I'm stunned. And I'm also stunned because I don't think he's wrong. Yeah. It's a hard fact that you have to accept. Like I said, I, I, when he said that, I just literally retracted. I was just could not believe it. And you're right, Mike. And the only hope I kind of have on this level at least short term, is the fact that we're going to have good governance Mm -hmm. under Joe Biden and that distributing the vaccine and coming together as a nation, not necessarily for for governance sake, but for health sake, that people are going or tend to be kinder to one another when Mm -hmm. politics aren't involved. Mm -hmm. Maybe that just gets us a temporary bridge to to allow some kind of decency to come back. But boy, Mike. You got me. Okay, sorry, sorry I'm about put that. A, no, no, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to. No, it's amazing. I, I just, I just, you went there and yeah. wow. I'm glad he did because I want to put a bookmark in the social problem that you noted, Mike. And I want to talk about it as a social problem and not as a political problem, but that is for another episode or five. So, um, <laughs> Let's move on to Lindsay. Earlier this week, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger told CBS This Morning that South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham implied that Georgia should throw out the ballots for counties who have the highest frequency error of signatures. Now, that phone call has triggered an investigation by the Senate Select Committee on Ethics. Graham has also said that he spoke with Arizona Governor Doug Ducey and officials from Nevada about the process for validating signatures. So, Susan, can you talk about how unprecedented it is for a sitting United States senator to call an elected official from another state to intervene in an election? And he's the head of the Judiciary Committee. Like, just add that to the mix. I mean, that, it's insanity. You couldn't write this into a Netflix series. Like it just doesn't work that way. It's not supposed to work that way. That level of intimidation. I mean, it's almost as bad as being the president inviting people from the legislators from Michigan to the White House now, which is a separate place. But <laughs> no, but seriously, like it, it, it is absurd. And I can't for the life of me understand how he thought this was a good idea. You know what? Donald Trump's on the way out. You just got reelected, Lindsay. What the heck are you doing this for? I mean, you're still going to you need free golf games at Mar-a-Lago or someplace else. I can't. It makes no sense whatsoever. And what it does, the effect it has is so severe and dramatic. It hurts our nation. It hurts our pillars of democracy. It is fundamentally what we are not about as a country. 
So Mike, I'm thinking about this from a numbers perspective. Can you talk about how many votes we would need to get thrown out, Lindsay would need to get thrown out, or how many people would need to be disenfranchised? Because that's what this is, right? This is essentially just an attempt to disenfranchise as many people who voted for Joe Biden as possible for there to be a consequential change in one of these states. This race was not that close. (laughs) I know I kind of keep saying that. (laughs) It feels closer than it was because of the long counts. And we visited on that. I'm not going to suggest that when, you know, millions of votes aren't counted and what's in 20,000 votes, that that, that you, know, you know, that that is arguably close. In, in terms of a vote count, as somebody who does campaigns for a living, 20,000 votes is not going to change in, in a recount by machine or by hand. It's just not. You can move maybe a few hundred at the most, but not, not even 1,000, certainly not 20,000. And that's really important for people to understand is, look, the 2000 election was, was very close, okay? We obviously know that Florida came down to 537, 538 votes. But you have to remember that New Mexico was, was um, you know, within 300 votes. Virginia was within 1,600 votes. Those are margins where recounts can actually make a difference. And, and you know, the Bush campaign didn't contest those. It wasn't putting the country through this. And I say that because there's no practitioner. Scott Walker in Wisconsin said this is not gonna this is not gonna change the outcome yeah, of the election. Yeah, if anybody yeah. should know as a Republican what what a recount does or doesn't do, it's Scott Walker in Wisconsin. Okay. Any practitioner who does campaigns for a living who is not biased, doesn't have a stake in this race, one or the other, is looking at these saying these are not these are not as close as you think they are, right? As practitioners, we know these were not close races. Georgia was the closest. Um, with a hand count, you saw the votes change, I think, what, 100 votes uh, mm-hmm. out of millions cast. That's what you would expect. That's a normal range. It was counted both by machine and by hand. So my long way of saying what Lindsey Graham is, is suspecting and, and arguing for is essentially fraud. He's essentially saying throw out those counties in, in enough volume to make sure that Donald Trump wins the election. There is nobody um, who is competent in this area that would suggest that any of these things or any of the lawsuits that have been brought or any of the questionable ballots, however marginal, are going to affect the outcome of the race in any of these states. So in terms of the math and the numbers, there's no math and numbers. It's not going to happen. Okay, so Susan, we talked about Trump's enablers in the Senate a lot during this past election, and we're seeing one of them now go from an enabler to becoming a co-conspirator in this attempted coup that we've been discussing just days after winning re-election. So how might winning re-election, as you noted before, embolden some of the senators who also got re-elected to behave just like Graham? I think that a lot of those senators will also have their own pressures to work with their colleagues at some point. Um, a lot we'll also have to do is we'll see what happens with Donald Trump. What we, we don't know what his hold is. We suspect we know what his hold is, but we really don't know. And I think that while I, I can't stand those enablers and I wish they weren't reelected, they want to get back to normal too, hmm. or as much normal as possible. And this is something that I think Mitch McConnell has his legacy. He has put together the most conservative Supreme Court ever. He has seen the conservative justices appointed at the federal level. I don't think he will. You will see the same vitriol that you did it, that he showed against um, President Obama. I think it will be a different mm. time. I th- 
they they don't operate like this. They don't like most of the senators, especially the senators. The House is a whole different story. I mean, that's a nightmare yeah, in itself. Yeah. But the senators typically don't like this. Well, historically, like I think. But but historically, the they haven't liked this. They, his, they haven't. The one thing that they do like, though, which I notice, is the attention they get for it. They yeah. like the TV. They yeah. love being on Fox. They yeah. love being able to raise money off of it. So. That, if anything, will really be the change is how much are they going to be starving for that attention and keeping that going? Because now, I mean, if they're just go back to I don't think they'll go back to before. But if things kind of calm down, the temperature comes down just a little bit. Well, that's a whole different that's a whole different story. But then again, we also see what's Ron Johnson going to be. I mean, do he's up for reelection. He has he he has been such a Trump enabler and basically cross every single line there is to cross when it comes to his his work on trying to discredit President-elect Joe Biden. And he has to face the electorate back in Wisconsin in 2022. How many people are dying right now in Wisconsin? What's he doing? He's talking about treatments like hydrocortisone and stuff like that. That's today. That's been disproven. He's still sucking up to the president. That's that is not going to fly. So we're, you're, I think you're sort of assuming that when Trump is no longer president, there will cease to be enough environmental cross pressure for them to behave the way they have been behaving. But doesn't that assume that Trump will stop doing what he, basically that he will relinquish his hold over their constituents? Well, it depends. On, again, it dep- we'll see what how much of that base he's really taking with him. That's what I don't know is how big is that is that portion? Is he really going to take 80 percent of the Republicans with him? I don't think so. And people want to see the back of Trump. They may you know, they may be enablers. They may be sycophants. But at the end of the day, it's exhausting and they make their he makes everyone's job a lot harder and they don't like that. So there is that side of it, too. They really they would have welcomed a calmer Trump. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On Tuesday night, Donald Trump fired Chris Krebs, who is Chris Krebs. He's the administration's most senior cybersecurity official responsible for securing the presidential election. And I should note that last week, this time last week, John Seifer called this firing about a week in advance. The firing came after the agency Krebs headed, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security, released a statement last week stating that the election was the most secure in American history and that there is no evidence any voting systems were compromised. Susan, we've talked about election security a lot uh, during this cycle, and Trump has been building up to this for months. Um, he and Bill Barr have have obviously been saying mail-in voting was going to lead to the most corrupt election in history. How successful were they in laying the groundwork for that particular communications strategy? Well, I think when you look at Krebs and what how he was fired, he knew he was going to be fired because he's competent. He did his job. What's disgraceful is you see a lot of members of the Senate who credit him and Christopher Wray, the two people who Donald Trump can't stand. Um, they credited him for putting together a, a almost flawless election cycle like he uh, when it comes to security. Of course, Donald Trump hates him. And of course, he has to fire anyone who is competent because he can't look like he's not the smartest man in the room. So with that, 
he had to get rid of him. He doesn't like anyone changing his narrative. It's not surprising, but it is disgraceful. Look, this is symptomatic of a broader problem that is going to be plaguing the country for the next 60 days or so. Susan's exactly right, first of all, that, you know, that the reason why he was shown the exit door, Krebs, is because he said what we all know and what the president doesn't want to hear. This is the most secure election we've had in, in our nation's history. Remember a few months ago, everybody's worried about Russian interference, our, ourselves included, because we were looking for a boogeyman mm-hmm. behind whatever tree we could find it. What were the most uh, exposed places? What were the most weakest areas? The truth of the matter is the Russians or the Chinese or whoever didn't interfere with the election because they didn't need to. They had somebody who was already undermining it internally for them. Why would they interfere with the enemy while we're in the process of destroying ourselves by the main asset that they could possibly have sitting in the Oval Office? He was doing all the work that they could, undermining the confidence in the election far better than they could have. If they had interfered, it would have taken away from that. It would have, it would have, it would have detracted from the incredible impact that this guy has had in undermining the confidence of what just happened. Again, 80% of Republicans think that there was some sort of fraud that went on when there's no scintilla, no shred of evidence to suggest that anywhere in the country. So, you know, look, mission accomplished. Now, having said that, this is not specific to just this one area, one department of government, right? He's chopping heads in the Pentagon. He's making moves that any rational person would not be making. And if you don't believe that we are at the, you know, at the beginning of that, then, you know, I've got a virus to sell you that you can also <laughs> be convinced isn't going to harm you, right? Th- that's the problem is what we're going to witness. And again, I, I believe our institutions are largely going to hold, but our institutions are only as strong as the men and women who uphold them. Which, again, goes back to Susan's point, which is, if you've got people who won't do the right thing, when we know that a peaceful transition of power needs to begin, but somebody's saying, oh, I'm under so much pressure, I can't make the right decision, when the decision is obvious on its face, those are the types of people that should not be running the government. Unfortunately, those are the only people that remain and where there are capable, competent experts that have actually been making sure our government has been sound for the past four years. He is summarily removing them. He's excusing them and putting more lackeys in place to either protect himself, shred whatever documents are there, or or move forward with an agenda in the last 60 days that are clearly not in America's best interest. That's what's going on. Okay. Now that we're up to speed on the most important news this week, let's look at the week ahead. What stories are you watching as we head into the next week, Susan? Rudy Giuliani has more of a meltdown than he had yesterday. Um, (laughs) Not only will he be dripping hair dye and sweating (laughs) and flop sweat, I actually think that... um, even that was too much for Donald Trump, I, especially the hair dye. He doesn't like unattractive things happening. It really turns him off. So I think he's in trouble with the president. But I think that he is he's done. Like, I think we will see him removed from the legal team. So that way, if Donald Trump wants to at least have any credibility, keep moving forward, he's going to get rid of Rudy Giuliani. OK, Mike. What are you watching? I haven't said this since April or May, but I'm watching the coronavirus spike. Guys, these numbers are, it's, as Susan said again earlier, it's out of control. It's going to affect all of our lives. It's going to be very deadly. We are entering a very, very dark 90-day period. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's no longer whether or not we can contain it. It's whether we're going to be able to manage and mitigate the damage as much as we possibly can. Uh, The next 60, 90 days are are going to take a, a steep toll on America, on our psyche, uh, on our healthcare infrastructure, 
um, on the fight to can, to deal with a president who who won't who won't um, help his fellow countrymen at a time when they are sick and getting sicker and dying. And um, I think we're going to witness and on our economy too, right? Yeah, I mean the economic I mean, stuff, and again, it's yeah. so incredibly important. But it's 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 secondary, of course, to the loss of life that we're going to see. Um, and that's that. I think is just the triage that we're trying to do while the president of the United States is literally holding all the levers of power and decision making process hostage for no good reason other than his own ego. At this point, he's lost the election. You lost. There's literally no reason to do what he is doing other than to kind of and I told you so, and and mm. and people are dying. As Susan said, yeah, and, and Ron, I just yeah. wanted next week is Thanksgiving, so yeah. to Mike's point, I think we should all be thankful for the first responders and the men and women who are in the hospitals and nursing homes and taking care of our loved ones because they are the heroes. They are the people who are fighting, and we should all be very thankful for them. Yeah. Let's go to our listener question for today, which comes from Kelly Peck. She writes, with news coming out that 70 odd percent of Republicans don't trust the electoral process, have Trump's attacks on democracy shot the Republican Party in the foot in unexpected ways? Do you all think this will depress turnout for the Republican base going forward? Mike, what do you think about that? Um, it's a good question. But again, I, I want to I challenge everybody to hear this a little bit differently, because while we are normally stuck in looking at kind of the partisan back and forth, red and blue, we are at a moment where it doesn't really matter. Uh, and I'll answer the question, but it doesn't really matter whether it's harming the Republican Party. It has over That cup has overflown. It is now hurting our country. It's hurting our very basic democratic uh, institutions. When you have a wide swath of people who will not believe in facts, when people do not believe in facts, and I'm not even saying a separate set of issues or what news is, I'm saying people who are believing just unadulterated lies, okay? Clearly, no evidence, no facts. And when tens of millions of people believe that, you cannot find common ground. By definition, you literally cannot. If you cannot agree on a set of facts, there is no compromise to be had. Our entire system, Entire communities, nations are built on compromise, okay? And when you have a, a group that rather than seeking compromise will find its own facts to fit its own narrative, its own justification, and its own rationale for blame, we are really in a deep, deep state of, of danger. And like I said, I'm so grateful that we won this election. Obviously spent a year working with, with the both of you and others on the Lincoln Project to make sure that that happened. But I do believe in many ways a much larger threat is on the horizon, and it is a social threat. So we need to stop thinking about this as just red or blue advantage. It's about a social problem that we're going to have to confront that is unlike anything that we have seen since at least the Civil War. We also have a listener comment from Lori Croce, who writes, Dear Ron and LP crew, I have been trying to think of something profound to write, but all I could think was, thank God for the Lincoln Project. Mike Madrid's analysis has been crucial to my sanity. He was persuasive and correct. Your podcast has been reassuring. I feel vindicated by Jennifer Horn and Tara Setmeyer. The others have informed and amused. I'm frightened for our country, but I'm not willing to give up the fight. I'm all in on the Lincoln Project, and I wanted to let you know you are saving me like-minded, decent folk, and our country from irreversible decline. So I'll repeat, thank God for the Lincoln Project, and God bless you. Thank you to everyone at home for listening, and thanks to Susan and Mike for making the time today. 
This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.